Hello and welcome to our third episode in the special Euroscience series. My name is Ken Sweeney and I am joined by my fellow Europe United contributor Michael Holt. My regular co-pilot Stella Bass can't be with us tonight, but we are joined by Europe United's Francis Kell to help us launch this episode. Hi guys, how are you doing? Oh, fabulous. Thank you. Michael, Thank you. you with us today, yeah? Yes, life is good, Ken. Good stuff. And uh, we are using a new system. We're using the clean feed system tonight. So hopefully you guys out there listening will get a good signal. Uh, in this podcast, we are discussing Europe in space. And to help us cover such a diverse topic, we are joined by our special guest, Remco Timmermans. With over 10 years in the space industry, managing online campaigns for space agencies, space companies and startups, Remco is a social media specialist for space at his company, 70 Media. Remco works in a network of other creative space people for which he has recently founded the Space Creativities Alliance in an effort to bring together and promote the non-rocket science of the space industry. Hi Renko, welcome to Euroscience. Hi Ken, thank you very much. Yeah, you're most welcome. We are absolutely delighted to have you. We're going to have a great conversation tonight because I don't think we ever get a chance to talk about Europe and space. It's all about America and Russia and <laughs> all those sort of things. So it's nice to get somebody on board who can actually give us a bit of um, bit of background. But before we chat about the space industry, tell me a little bit about your diverse roles. And I believe you are an adjunct facility member at the International Space University. Can you tell us a little bit about that? I am, yeah. I, I wear quite a few hats in the space industry, I must say. Um, uh, but first and foremost, I am how you introduce me. Um, I have my own company doing uh, social media campaigns um, um, as, as a contractor mostly uh, for a wide variety of uh, space organizations. Uh, but my key uh, selling point, if you like, is that I dedicate myself to uh, working for uh, space organizations. So I do campaigns for uh, space companies. Um, that's not the only thing I do. Um, as I said, I wear many hats. Um, I'm involved in the International Space University, which is the only university in the world 100% uh, dedicated to space education, where I'm an adjunct faculty member, meaning I teach a few courses and I've been involved in their summer program um, since 2013. Um, I do work for an organization called spaceagenda.com, which aims to be the uh, online agenda for space professionals. Um, and I am currently the, the volunteer, I should say, CEO of the Space Up Foundation, an organization that organizes unconferences um, about space, uh, basically with the aim to bring uh, the global space community together um, at local events. So uh, think local, act global, that, that type of idea. And um, being very successful with, uh, with dozens of events all around the world in the last years. Can I ask you about the International Space University? That sounds really exciting. Can you tell me, is it online or is there an actual premises that people go to? No, this is an actual university. And uh, it, it's... It's good that you asked because the, the, the International Space University was my uh, entrance into the space industry. Uh, my background, um, education-wise, is not in space. Um, and the International Space University that I attended as a student only 10 years ago um, completely changed my life. Um, it was my... my uh, my entrance to, to the space industry It was my first contact. You know, when I... Uh, I I've always had a passion for space. And... Um, but I was in the wrong career, if you like. Well, I was in a good career, but it had nothing to do with space. And I kind of refound my uh, connection with the space community through social media. Um, you know, I, I, I was always a little bit alone with my nerdy space hobby. And uh, at some point in my career, it dawned on me that uh, I should really make uh, um, a living out of my hobby. Uh, but how to do that when you don't have the background? So I went looking for opportunities to, uh, uh, to re-educate myself. 
in that area. I found the International Space University, and that was that was a perfect match. Um, as I said, it's the only university in the world uh, that's fully dedicated to space education, uh, but it offers uh, programs that are also suitable for people like myself who didn't want to do a full university course, but rather get a, a, a brief um, yet um, um, deep enough introduction into the space industry to, uh, uh, well, basically build a career um, using my previous expertise uh, in a non-space sector uh, with uh, new uh, knowledge of space. And it did that um, uh, during during the summer course. It's called the Space Studies Program that I followed for nine weeks, kind of a high-pressure um, education environment, seven times 24 um, in, in a small group of professionals where you're basically, uh, well, I wouldn't call it brainwashed, that's definitely the wrong word, but immersed into space, into the world of space for, for nine weeks, and it's absolutely amazing. And uh, in addition to gaining the knowledge that I needed to feel confident in the space industry, it also introduced me to, uh, to a network in space. The alumni network of the International Space University is extremely uh, powerful and helpful, I must say, uh, if you want to build a career in space. So for me, that was the kind of the, well, as I said, the entrance uh, to my, my, my new career in space. And uh, I, I haven't uh, regretted it for a second since I left there. That, that sounds amazing. And the other thing I wanted to ask you was about this university, because I'm really fascinated by it. I presume people of all ages and all backgrounds are involved in this because it's probably like a second win for them, isn't it? It's a chance to go back maybe to a childhood dream or an ambition that they had as a younger person. It is, and that's kind of my story. Uh, mm -hmm. Not everyone is like that. There, I'm there like are people, that. <laughs> so, uh, that yeah. Well, yeah, sure. No, it's it's totally open for anyone, any any age. Uh, in fact, in in my year, there was uh, a guy from Canada uh, who had just retired, and he finally had the time and a little bit of the money to invest in his hobby, and he wanted to take it to uh, to a professional level. And he joined uh, the Space University for the nine week summer program, and uh, and and we we had a wide variety. We, I think the youngest person was twenty one. The oldest was in his 60s, and it was uh, yeah, it was it was absolutely brilliant. And the nice thing is um, that you're being taught by by the best of the best in the space industry. I mean, I've I've met I've met dozens of astronauts uh, uh, teaching the 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 course of uh, of system engineering, space system engineering was taught by the guy who fixed Hubble in space. I mean, imagine. Wow. Uh, pretty amazing. Wow. Uh, Buzz Aldrin has been a special guest in, in, in several editions in the last years. And uh, it's, it's that level of expertise that the university brings into those courses that, that, that make it absolutely amazing to go through, um, but also gets you right into the heart of the industry, uh, which is perfect if you want to build either a first or a second or even a third career uh, in the space industry. That's amazing. And the other thing as well is, of course, that people uh, you know they, they you're sharing an interest and it's not like you're going into a, a kind of university where you know you're studying a basic um concept like say physics or biology or something like that there's it's 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 for space people are you know a lot of people from different backgrounds and different education levels can can come into space because it's there for people to take isn't it Yes, absolutely. And, th and that is critical to the International Space University. It accepts people from any background. Uh, in fact, um, it kind of discourages people with a space engineering background 
um, because there are so many and ISU really wants to be this interdisciplinary place so you don't learn about uh, about rocket science and rocket building and the technology of space no you learn about all the elements of the space industry it's really an introduction to an industry to a sector more than an academic topic and and, and that's what what differs it from uh, from many other universities so you learn about uh, not just about rocket science of course there's rocket science how rockets work and and how space systems work but you also learn about the human body in space uh, you learn about managing a space company uh, you learn about the arts and the culture around space uh, you learn about um, uh, law the space legislation so it's a really a very wide variety of topics that really def uh, defines the industry rather than focusing on just one and in space it's usually the technical element of it yeah and i suppose i mean space still has the ability to capture the imagination say in the same way that flying did 100 years ago and seafaring did before that so its soft power appeal is obvious and many still associated with astronauts walking on celestial bodies or with sci-fi inspired space warfare the, the us i mean it's still the headline grabbing leader although china and others are noisily muscling in too but i wanted to ask you like what big exploration and research products in say europe um are happening right now yeah, there's there's loads, in fact, um, and and it's it's true. There is a conception, a misconception, I'd say, that uh, everything space is happening in the U.S., uh, maybe in Russia, uh, maybe in China, but there's a lot happening in Europe, and 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 I always tell people that. Uh, there's never been a more exciting times in space than right now everywhere in the world. So uh, zooming in on, on what's happening in, in Europe right now, and mind you, it's not just the European Space Agency is doing it. There's loads of national space agencies doing uh, doing amazing programs. Um, there's the European Commission uh, that that has its own uh, space program as well, which is, which is kind of fascinating. But just to give a few examples of what's happening, um, well, recently, I'd say in the last decade, um, most listeners will have heard of a mission called Rosetta, um, a spacecraft that went out to uh, to uh, uh, explore a comet. Uh, we've we've seen Cassini-Huygens a little bit further back, a mission to Saturn and to uh, and and to Titan, a moon of Saturn, where uh, the Europeans actually landed a spacecraft on the surface of Titan. Mind you, it has a methane atmosphere and lakes filled with uh, supercooled methane. It's 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 quite a hostile place, but. It's where Europeans did uh, did research. Then current um, ESA has missions to the um, uh, to Mercury, uh, the Bipi Colombo mission. Uh, people have maybe heard about. It's a mission that will um, orbit the planet Mercury uh, for for science. Uh, we have Mars Express at the moment um, orbiting uh, the planet Mars to do. Um, um, all kinds of research and studies on the, on the surface and the atmosphere of Mars, and most recently, um, and I was I was uh, at one of the uh, uh, mission control centres uh, during the launch is the Solar Orbiter. It's a spacecraft that will get closer to the sun uh, that, than any spacecraft has, has ever been, and it will actually uh, orbit uh, the polar regions of the sun. So the sun has has polar regions, believe it or not, has a north pole and a south pole, uh, but spacecraft have never been able to uh, to fly over the north and south pole of the sun, and, and the uh, the European Solar Orbiter uh, is going to do that in the next couple of years. Um, also in the future, um, um, ESA is involved uh, in in international projects. Um, 
most listeners will have heard of, of new attempts to go to, uh, to, to, to the moon and Mars and um, the American space agency NASA has developed uh, the Orion spacecraft and uh, the European Space Agency uh, is working on building the service module for that spacecraft that is built to go out into deep space. The European service module will be a very important, if not critical, element of Orion missions going out to the Moon and to Mars. Uh, we have ExoMars. Uh, it's, it's been delayed a little bit, but in 2022, the Rosalind Franklin rover will actually be launched and uh, join its American and, uh, and, and other um, robot friends on the surface of Mars to do uh, to do research there. We have the JUICE mission that will be launched to Jupiter soon. So there's a, there's a lot happening in deep space exploration in Europe and uh, and well I'm sure we'll talk about some other uh, space programs uh, later on as well. Remco, uh, let us go a little bit uh, back in time uh, and look at space operations uh, historically. So mm -hmm. like many other transportation technologies, let's say long distance flying and sea travel, you know, all of these technologies at some point, they, they were completely new and people were, were unexperienced with it. Yeah. And uh, so it was, of course, with uh, with space travel and space operations. Maybe in the yeah end of the end of the 40s, early 1950s, and so on, when everything started. Mm -hmm. um, but also as flying and uh, going by ship or by boat and all of these other transportation technologies. Uh, today, like space space flight seems a little bit, you know, this. Uh, yeah, it seems a little bit mundane, you know, mm -hmm. that uh, like it's not it's not quite like the uh, moon landing anymore, if you understand what I mean. So, you know, yes. you have the moon landing, you have this this super huge occasion that is new, it is hyped, that is it is an adventure. And, uh, you know, every and everybody is just amazed by all of these things. And when you look at the, in the news mm -hmm. today, like, OK, there was a, a satellite launch. You know, it's uh, you kind of uh, dismiss it a little bit, you know, as yeah, this is completely normal, right? Yeah. Um, so it seems that space operations became also a little bit of a mundane thing. Uh, but uh, therefore, I would be interested in uh, how does Europe, uh, yeah, figure in day to day day to day space operations. And uh, what does it really entail, you know, space day-to-day uh, uh, -day space operations? Yes, this this is this is interesting because this is very true. Uh, I mean, and and that's what you see with everything that is new in the beginning. It's new. It is there's a, there's a level of danger. There's a, a certain level of excitement that excites the whole world, and then after a few uh, uh, of these events, it 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 becomes boring. We saw it. With, with with the Apollo launches, everybody knows who was on board of Apollo 11 uh, that did the actual moon landing, and everybody knows exactly where they were. Yet nobody remembers Apollo 12, and Apollo 14, and Apollo 15, mm. and Apollo 16. Many people didn't even know they happened, these missions. And, and, and that's kind of even worse nowadays, where people get bored um, even more quickly. And in a way, that is okay because it indicates, uh, at least now in, in, in the 2020s, that space is becoming a commodity. 
and that's fine um, because it also enables that the, the fact that nothing ever happens in a bad way that there are no big explosions on the launch pads that we saw in the 1950s and 1960s uh, means that the space industry has uh, grown to a level where uh, where it allows uh, more risk in an economic sense uh, to be taken and uh, the fact that the prices are dropping since things are commoditizing means that it, it's opening a market for commercial players and, and that's something that we'll, we'll, we'll probably be talking about a little bit in this uh, in this episode uh, yeah. but there's opportunities for entrepreneurs uh, to, to to work in this area but on the other hand don't get me wrong uh, the boundary uh, this 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 uh, uh, this space boundary, the wild west of space, is moving up. Uh, so we talk about a low Earth orbit, which is where many Earth observation and and, and weather satellites and and smaller satellites circle. That is now the domain of commercial players. Um, but if we talk about these deep space missions to the Sun, to Mercury, to to the planets, um, even out there, that is still very much. Uh, unknown, uncharted terrain where um, everything that is happening is actually really exciting. It is new. New technology needs to be developed. And, and you'll see that once we go back to the moon, well, maybe it doesn't reach the excitement stages that we saw uh, with Apollo. But when we go back to Mars, that, that might happen again. Uh, I, I do foresee that peak to be really short, though. Um, but you were also asking uh, the, the role of Europe in this day-to-day -day space business. So so let's say that... Yes, exactly. that uh, in, th in this this more mundane uh, commercial uh, space, and actually Europe is playing a really really big role there in 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 in, in quite a few ways. Uh, first of all, um, the European Commission has its own space program. I, I mentioned that slightly before, uh, but. Uh, Unknown to many people, uh, the world's largest Earth observation program is the Copernicus program that is run by the European uh, um, Commission. Uh, the world's most advanced and accurate uh, satellite navigation system, uh, called Galileo, uh, is uh, being finalized at the moment. It's in orbit, it's working. Uh, also a program by the European Commission. Uh, providing a lot of work for European scientists, researchers and the European industry to build all these spacecraft and develop um, all this technology. And in addition to that, uh, with these uh, um, very big uh, space programs, uh, the European uh, Commission has uh, the objective to create jobs. Uh, jobs not just in in the technology in the space industry, but for Galileo and for Copernicus, uh, many more jobs based on the data that it's providing. You can imagine the world's largest Earth observation program. You have to imagine uh, several satellites now orbiting the Earth. They've been orbiting the Earth for several years, providing uh, terabytes of new data every day about our own planet. These are all telescopes and and cameras and instruments uh, looking at the Earth. Uh, creating data about everything that's happening on this planet and and the and one of the, the the key things that the European Commission has in mind is that this data is made available for free to anyone who wants to use it uh, and that creates uh, thousands tens of thousands potentially hundreds of thousands of jobs in all kinds of industries where this information can be used so this is actually quite quite exciting. It might sound mundane. Uh, we're talking about data. We're talking about IT specialists. We're not talking about astronauts. But this is really where the value, especially in Europe, uh, the value of, uh, of, of its developing commercial space industry uh, is. 
Remco, this that that brings us on. You mentioned the drop in the price of launching um, infrastructure into space, and that's very important because mm-hmm. a lot of that is credit is credited to the um, private space sector in the U.S. Uh, you know, Musk, Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos, mm-hmm. and Richard Branson, and what they've done, if I understand correctly, that's different from, say, NASA and, and the other big government programs, is that whereas the big government programs like to do the state-of-art stuff, and you've just explained why, because they're, they're, they're broaching new frontiers, um, but these private firms have said, well, we can make do with good enough technology. If it does the job, it does the job, and that's all we need. And that's helped cut the cost that's my understanding of it anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, and you also mentioned that that dropping cost is very important because it makes space technology available to a much wider uh, level of applications. And you've, you've talked about the European Commission programs making data available widely for you know, free of charge which is very, very important because it opens it up for things like climate science and monitoring things like um, ocean pollution and many other things like that that don't generate profits as, say, communication satellites do. Mm-hmm. Um, but one of the things you didn't mention yet, at least, is a European private sector space industry. Mm-hmm. Um, does it matter that there seems not to be one or that we never hear of one? Um, yeah, I think that matters a lot because it's not true. Uh, I mean, good. I, I, good. I'm I, glad you said that. <laughs> <laughs> I really like the question. It's, it's rather controversial, but it does reflect the, the level of knowledge, uh, oh. the understanding of, of most people in society. And, and, and that's a pity. Uh, because, in fact, the oldest and biggest commercial space company in the world is based in Europe. It's, it's SES, based in Luxembourg, a company that was the, one of the first players in commercial space, uh, recognizing uh, the potential of space infrastructure for live TV broadcasts all around the world. Um, and, 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 and they become, became the biggest truly commercial space company by launching their own satellites, Astra. Most people have heard of the Astra system. All these dishes that you see on people's houses, they uh, connect to satellites that are owned and operated by SES in Luxembourg. Um, and and, and that's, that's really the first story of commercial space in Europe that nobody knows about. And, and unfortunately, there, there are many more of, of these stories. But uh, as, as I alluded to before, um, there is uh, uh, a big growing commercial space sector in Europe. There, there is one in America. I mean, let's face it, the SpaceX's and Jeff Bezos of the world, they, they, they get a lot of credit, but there's a lot happening in Europe, which is different. What you see in America, it's a few billionaires uh, and, and I don't want to discredit some of the other people who are not billionaires, uh, but, but uh, much of it is, much of the attention, I should say, 
is grasped by a few billionaires who are doing very spectacular things at mm. extremely high costs, yeah. taking a large chunk of that commercial space sector. That is not happening in Europe. Uh, what is happening in Europe is actually providing a hell of a lot more jobs uh, because mm. these are all small SMEs, uh, one person, two person, three person, smaller and medium sized businesses that benefit from an investment that the European Commission has done in things like Copernicus uh, and Galileo, uh, but now also benefiting this dropping cost in launch that is uh, to a very large extent uh, thanks to people like uh, like Elon Musk and SpaceX who, who, who are developing breakthrough technology that brings down this cost, but also to companies like Ariane Space, uh, who have just, just a few days ago, they launched 53 satellites on one relatively cheap uh, Vega rocket. Uh, and, and that's the kind of technology that's being developed in Europe that we don't really hear a lot about. So what we see in Europe is many more but much smaller and not not very uh, rich companies that are developing this this technology um, they are supported and and that's very important un, under this this banner to say um, there's not just the european commission that is is facilitating uh, this growth of uh, of space entrepreneurism and and small and medium companies but also local governments i mean i mentioned luxembourg and and unrelated to ses maybe inspired by ses but the luxembourg government is one of the first governments in europe that is actively supporting uh uh, the um, how should I say that the the enabling the facilitating of of new space companies by uh, adopting new legislation. So under Luxembourg law, there is special attention for um, for uh, resource mining in space, for things like asteroid mining and mining on on other celestial bodies. Um, bringing it a little bit closer to home, I'm 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 based in the UK, and and here in the UK, the government is very actively supporting. Uh, um, space innovation and space entrepreneurship by having lots of uh, funding opportunities and incubation and, and uh, startup support for companies uh, who uh, want to operate in, in a few specific areas. So the UK is stimulating the development of small launches, again, to bring this cost down that you mentioned, um, but also uh, launch sites here in the UK itself. So that there are several places in the UK and in all corners of the country that are developing uh, spaceports for use by small commercial launchers to bring small commercial payloads into, into, into low Earth orbit from UK soil. Um, uh, in addition to um, um, facilitating and enabling the growth of, uh, of small satellite technology. So the UK is looking at uh, developing its own um, um, commercial space industry and it actually has mentioned I think it was in 2017 where the UK government committed itself to um, uh, to grasping a large part uh, I think they said 10% of the global commercial space market uh, creating more than a hundred thousand UK jobs uh, in this particular high-tech area so uh, a lot is happening but unfortunately, it's all in the small and medium size uh, size companies that we don't hear a lot about. To, to give you another example, if I may, the, um, I, I, I live in a town called Harwell, which is in Oxfordshire. It's a very small town. Uh, nobody had heard um, about it until the 1960s when uh, there was a big nuclear research plant. And, and since 
the the attention for nuclear has kind of disappeared a little bit. Uh, the facilities on Harwell campus have focused uh, towards the space industry. And now Harwell campus uh, is home to over a hundred small space companies that are developing amazing technology that we will hear a lot about in, in the next decade. But unfortunately, we haven't reached the levels of SpaceX uh, here yet. But a lot is happening. Uh, and, and what is happening here in the UK is, uh, is, is very exciting. Yes, indeed. I have a question. And uh, Remco, you quickly uh, mentioned it also. I mean, we are we are putting up more and more satellites actually into into orbit. So then also, um, you know, the question comes up: how uh, how volatile is uh, human civilization in the sense that you know, if all of our communication or a large part of our communication network depends on satellites, and then there is you know danger of collision that could be uh, you know solar storms that create electromagnetic pulses asteroids and uh, really a lot of different dangerous things how can we minimize this risk or what kind of regulation is there what kind of agreements uh, does exist uh, to yeah to tackle these common challenges is there some sort of traffic rules or uh, maybe um, maximum amount of launches that a country is allowed to do and things like this yeah yeah well in fact, there is, and you mentioned the word traffic, traffic rules, and uh, a word that has popped up on more and more space conferences and in more and more space conversations is called space traffic management. Uh, because you're absolutely right, with uh, hundreds, thousands of satellites now uh, in orbit and, and, and adding more uh, on a weekly basis, uh, this is becoming a very, uh, very important topic. There's, there's, there's two things here really. One is uh, space traffic management that I mentioned. The other one uh, in the, in the industry is known as space situational awareness, um, where space traffic management deals uh, with keeping track of everything that humans brought into orbit. Um, the other space situational awareness is more about the natural phenomena that we see, and and both are important. Uh, to, to understand what's what's going on in space and, wh and what the risks are, because this is all about risk management. So um, if we look at space situation awareness, if we look at natural phenomena that, that, that uh, risk space missions and, and risk this, uh, this growing infrastructure, uh, the, the, the biggest threat there are, are solar storms. I mean, you mentioned it, it real briefly, but uh, as, uh, as science now knows, the, solar, uh, the, the sun is, is a very active uh, star that uh, emits a lot of radiation. This radiation is, is very harmful for humans, but is also very harmful for uh, the electronics that we bring into space. Uh, mm, electronics yes. are very sensitive to radiation. And when the sun is in an active phase, and, and the sun has an 11-year cycle uh, in, in, in activity, right now the sun is extremely inactive, so the, the, the radiation is very constant. But in a couple of years, uh, that will change, and, and the sun will uh, emit uh, um, varying levels of radiation, solar storms, um, and, and they can be harmful um, for, for satellites. Um, then there are things like micrometeorites and, and bigger, what we call near-Earth objects, and there are people, organizations, who keep track of all the asteroids uh, that are in, in our area. There's hundreds of thousands, if not millions of them, uh, none of which pose a danger in the next, say, 10,000 years, but there are now systems uh, 
that 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 keep track of that. Not that we can do much when they approach us, but we know that uh, they don't form a danger at the moment. Uh, traffic management is a, is a whole different story. This is about uh, the number of satellites, and this kind of relates to what you were saying. Uh, it's all about preventing uh, things like in-orbit collisions, and you have satellites circling in all kinds of directions, crisscross. Uh, at different altitudes, at different speeds, uh, but the speed to keep something in orbit, just to give you an idea, in, in what we call low Earth orbit, that's uh, roughly in between 350 and 800 kilometers uh, above the Earth's surface, uh, the speeds of these satellites in order to maintain orbit is about um, 28,000 kil kilometers per hour. So you can imagine that is uh, dozens of times faster than a bullet. And if they meet each other in opposite directions, uh, you can imagine that a collision uh, leaves absolutely nothing uh, in intact of any of these spacecraft. And in fact, uh, this debris that is created, space debris is, is the word that we use for that. Uh, the debris that is caused by these accidents, but also by uh, satellites that stop functioning, they run out of fuel, yes. uh, something breaks, uh, they are no longer controlled, um, they are then added to this orbiting space debris uh, that has the potential to, uh, well, basically hit anything up there in space without anyone able uh, being able to control that. So uh, space debris at the moment is by far the biggest threat to, uh, to space operations uh, at the moment. A quick, quick, a quick uh, engineering question that I that I have to ask <laughs> right now. Mm -hmm. uh, can you, uh, do you know by coincidence uh, wh what is the smallest size that can be tracked? You know, in terms of debris objects. Yeah, at the moment, uh, everything over 10 centimeters in size it's, is tracked, and they are putting in place new systems that can track things smaller than 10 centimeters down to mm. one centimeter. Um, we, we use radar from Earth to track these things. We use telescopes from Earth, mind you, uh, looking at a, at, a, at a small piece of debris flying 28,000 kilometers per hour, 500 kilometers up in the sky, but we can actually see them uh, through telescopes. So we use those to track those. Uh, smaller items are, are very difficult. And uh, we are putting in place more accurate telescopes, more accurate radar systems to, to track some of the smaller parts. But there are literally hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of these smaller parts. And you, you can imagine even a small piece of metal or of, of something that broke off a satellite at those speeds, uh, going much faster than a bullet from a gun, uh, can cause ex extreme damage. And uh, right. even smaller pieces than a centimeter that can absolutely not be detected at, at this moment, uh, they fly around randomly and we have no idea where they are. Uh, this is this is really dangerous. Uh, Ramco, just accidents aside, I mean, let's talk about rival space powers. I mean, surely mm -hmm. somebody like that can cripple an entire communication system by knocking out a satellite or two, or even stealing or corrupting vital data. So how does individual industry or national industry protect itself against accidental and deliberate damage to vital infrastructure and theft of data? Do we need to rewrite outer space treaties to include privateers uh yeah it, it kind of already does in a way because the outer space treaty uh although it doesn't ban 
military use of space or, or weaponization as such. It, it doesn't allow uh, the placement of weapons of mass destruction in space, um, although obviously there's there's no police up there, so there's no sanctions. Uh, but it also regulates very much what, what countries can and cannot do. And, and every launching state has its own regulations. In the, in the United States, we have the FAA that regulates uh, certain elements of space flight, um, uh, especially when it comes down to launching. Uh, we, we have similar th things in Europe that I'm not 100% aware of. One thing that I should mention is, is there is a regulatory body for global space legislation. It's called the United Nations Office for Outer Space Affairs, ANUSA, and most importantly, uh, it, its committee called COPUS, the Committee on Peaceful Uses of Outer Space. And in that committee, um, all countries or all member countries and, and basically any country that has a space program is a member of COPUS, with a few exceptions here and there. Uh, but in that committee, the basic rules are set. So they talk about things uh, like liabilities. If there is a collision by an, an American and a European spacecraft, uh, how does the insurance process work and who is responsible for the damage that is done to the infrastructure, but also the damage that is done potentially to here on the ground because of communication failures and, well, what 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 all may happen? Um, it also talks about ownership of uh, of space resources. So uh, can we just claim an asteroid if if I don't know a big chunk of gold flies by and someone is able to capture it? Well, can the country or the company claim ownership of that thing? The same if once we start mining the moon and Mars, who who owns these resources and, and how, how does ownership work? Uh, countries can then define their own specific policies in space law and, and, and this is this is a very interesting part of uh, of, of space exploration uh, that has led to the development of, of a specific uh, career called space lawyers. There are now over 500 space lawyers in the world that talk about these things. And, and, and this is something where uh, a lot of time will need to, to be invested to, uh, to, to further work out this legislation, because as, as we're all seeing now in the space industry, is that reality is happening much faster than the lawmakers can, uh, can keep up with. And, and we do need some of these yeah. things in, in place. Yeah, sorry, I, I wanted to, to mention one, one more thing in, in, uh, in, in uh, answering your question. And it's a vital thing you mentioned. It is data theft. Uh, you use the word data theft. And uh, this, is, this is an important one, especially nowadays, um, because satellite communication may be relatively new. Uh, I mean, we've only been launching satellites for, what is it, 60 years now. Uh, but many of the radio links that are in use are, are very old um, and, and use unprotected protocols. So um, hacking of, of satellite systems, spoofing of GPS signals, uh, data security, they, they are now real risks. In, in today's world. That wasn't so much an issue uh, 20, 30 years ago, but now that we send so much information through satellites from one continent to the other, um, um, data security uh, is is becoming a, a very important issue. And this is underestimated, I think, by many satellite operators at the moment. So they should be working really hard to ensure uh, right levels of encryption and security of, uh, well, to keep their assets in space safe and to keep our data protected and, and also to make sure that nobody hacks a satellite to, to do the wrong things. So, so this, is, this is something relatively new that I think deserves a, a lot more attention. Yeah, certainly does, considering the fact that money and, and everything else that's so kind of crucial to everyday running of the world is being transferred via that system. Yep. Yeah. Remco, you mentioned lawyers and you were talking a lot about how what a big danger 
space debris is. And to a lot of us, I mean, the, sh the sheer number of things being sent up into space uh, now is, is mind-boggling. Just the SpaceX program is going to send more than 40,000 satellites. Now, it, you know, it has laudable um, aims to provide universal access to the internet and things like that. But that's a lot of stuff going into space. And given that every single one of those can easily break up into thousands or ten, tens of thousands of small pieces that them, themselves become um, potentially lethal, um, this, this, the size of the problem starts to become obvious when you think about that. And it's not new. Kessler warned about that as far back as 1978, if I understand correctly. But what do we do about it? A lot of us, ordinary folk, think it's a bit unfair that one or two countries, one in particular perhaps, um, sends most of the stuff into space, which is actually the public domain, if you like, endangering absolutely everybody else. Do we need some, now pardon the unpun, ground rules, um, some kind of quota system about how, how much who, each person can, each country can send up there? How do we manage that that the amount of stuff being going up into space? Yeah, yeah. This this is definitely an extremely relevant question, and uh, it's 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 a very relevant debate in the space industry that has happened right now. And and this kind of alludes to what I was saying before: is that reality is happening faster than legislation is keeping up. And what we're seeing here, to many of us in the space industry, is uh, people kind of uh, abusing the fact that there is no legislation. So they are legally they're they're. they're they're doing things in space, they're launching these satellites legally, uh, yet uh, without maybe uh, overseeing all the consequences. I mean, the Kessler syndrome is, and that's, that's a very well-known issue in, in the space industry. It was presented as a highly theoretical possibility in the 1970s, as you said, when, when there were only a few spacecraft orbiting, orbiting the planet. But that whole idea of, uh, of, of these of, of, of these uh, cascading collisions that the Kessler syndrome is talking about happening has has never been closer to reality as today and and it will be even closer to reality tomorrow uh, this this is now as, as I said before by far the biggest risk to space exploration a, a single collision right now as you correctly say can now make space inaccessible for many decades because that debris is not going to disappear so um, without a working space debris mitigation system in place, every launch really is an unacceptable increase in, in, in this collision risk. And as I said, what's happening, what SpaceX is doing is is completely legal. So these mega constellations, they're, they're a great idea economically perhaps, but if, in, if, if uncontrolled, they, they could also mean the end of useful space of this low and middle Earth orbits. It, it's, it's bad judgment to my opinion and, and to many with me, of the United States authorities to let SpaceX just launch these massive amounts of satellites that, that, that they are launching. And, and mind you, they are launching almost on a weekly basis at the moment. Many people do not realize, but Starlink, these communication satellites, are launched on a weekly basis, uh, and I think it's 60-odd at a time, um, that, that they're putting out in orbit, um, especially since I think uh, that they're all alternative ways. I mean, it's great to bring high-speed internet connections to the unconnected, 
but there might be better ways to do this. And, and what SpaceX is doing is finding a loophole in the law, or really a law that should be there but isn't there yet, to, uh, to grasp this opportunity to be the first one out there and, and in a way ruin it for everyone else. So this is definitely an issue that needs to be discussed much more. I'm sure in Copious uh, they are discussing these things, but it's, it's unfortunate that uh, reality is, is way ahead of the lawmakers at the moment. So it's uncertain times in, in many respects. We used to have uncertain times about what the future held for space travel, but now we've got to incorporate uncertainty with um, a certain degree of danger. Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, and it's, it's an economic danger more than anything mm, else. Exactly. Uh, although it is a danger to people. I mean, we have uh, people on board the International Space Station, which is in the middle of this uh, this area where space debris occurs, but uh, the risk is really economical, uh, and 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 in fact, in one of the uh, the space upon conferences uh, that we're having in in on the 7th of October uh, during World Space Week uh, we're going to discuss this the theme for World Space Week which which is something that uh, that comes from the United Nations the United Nations declared week in which we celebrate everything that's great about space between 4 and 10th of October every year uh, and in, in that light we're, we're organizing an unconference that talks about this and and one of the panels that we are organizing talks about a world without satellites what would that look like? Just to make people realize of the enormous benefits and the enormous dependency that modern society has on satellite technology and on all those invisible satellites that are orbiting the globe at the moment. And, and it's, it's always an eye-opener to do that mental exercise to what would happen if there were no satellites. Uh, I mean, you and I would not be talking at the moment. The internet would not work as it, as it does today. We would not know what the weather would bring tomorrow. We would not be able to position ourselves and, and we would lose the way trying to drive to grandma on the weekend. Uh, there's loads of things that would happen if that infrastructure does not exist and we just take it for granted. And it's it's such an undervalued part of modern society that, that I would like to, to see people understand a little bit better. So, Again, thank you very much for allowing me to to talk about this here. Remco, thank you very much for taking the time out to talk to us this evening. Um, we've gone a little bit over time what we normally do with a podcast, um, but I just thought it was kind of crucial that we get these questions asked. And I have to appreciate that you've taken so much time to answer them for us in such a detailed way. Can you tell me the 7th of October, um, the, the live event for World Space Week, how can people um, log on to that or find out more about that? Ah, yes, thank you for asking. Um, you can go to the, the SpaceUp website, spaceup.org, or, of course, go to the uh, the agenda for the space industry at spaceagenda.com. You will find them uh, find the event both, and, and there will be links there on how to register and, uh, and join us in, in that discussion. Super. And how do people get to follow you? I think you're on Twitter a fair bit, aren't you? Following me is fairly easy <laughs> because I work in social media. So just Google my name, Remco Timmermans, and you'll find me on Twitter. You'll find me on Facebook and LinkedIn on uh, on Instagram uh, or go to my uh, to my website, um, 70media.com to uh, find everything about my uh, wonderful work in the wonderful world of social media for space. It's amazing. And thank you so much for taking out the time this evening. Thank you very much for having me. Okay, guys, you've just been listening to uh, Remco Timmermans. He was our guest this evening on Europe in Space. And I hope you really enjoyed that conversation because we certainly did. Uh, it's great to get the, uh, the deep down into the questions. We all know about how exciting space is. But at the end of the day, there's nuts and bolts stuff. And there are lots of people working in this. And there are, as I say, 
then Remco has said there's exciting challenges and there's also a couple of threats. So um, hopefully you will join us for our next uh, Euroscience podcast and we shall have that coming for you in a few weeks' time. In the meantime, you can check us out at europeunited.eu. All our podcasts are there. And you can also find us on Twitter at europeunited.eu as well as on Facebook and uh, Instagram on europeunited.eu. My thanks to my uh, fellow co-hosts, Michael Holt and Francis Cowell for helping me out today. I hope you all enjoy that and we will see you soon. Take care, guys. Bye-bye.